Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining us today in the show, we've got a very special guest. He's a well-known author from the UK who's written 30 books since 1999. His newest ones, The Complete History of Black Sabbath, What Evil Lurks, and Thunder, Giving the Game Away, the official biography, are both available in stores and on Amazon. And, you know, in addition to being a great writer, uh, he's also one hell of a nice guy who was good enough to give me the testimonial that appears on the cover of my latest book, All My Favorite People Are Broken. His name is Mr. Joel McIver. Joel, how you doing, my man? I'm really well, thank you, Brent, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. You are welcome, sir. It's a privilege. So, Joel, you've written uh, 30 books. That is 27 more books <laughs> than I've written. It's funny. It sounds terrible when you say you've written that many books because people assume that you're all about quantity, not quality. <laughs> but I, I should point out that you know those 30 books were written over an 18-year period, so I haven't, I haven't knocked them all out in one go. Yeah, right. So, and in fact, if you include all the translations and updates, there's well over 100. Um, but there's 30 original volumes. Wow. Wow. Um, Yes, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate, you know, people, I had a couple of early successes and people have asked me to continue writing books. And what I've done in the last few years is work with people on their official books. So I'm sort of a go-to co-writer for people who want to write an autobiography, for example, or an official biography, in fact. Um, So the two books you just mentioned, the Sabbath one and the Thunder one, uh, well, in fact, they're quite different in, in nature. The Sabbath one is wholly unauthorized. Okay. Uh, and the other one is wholly authorized. And uh, I always say to people that authorized doesn't mean good, just as unauthorized doesn't mean bad. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you tell the story in the best way you can. But when you do an authorized book, your words are subject to the approval of some, uh, either the manager or, or, the, or the musician or whoever it is. Right. So, uh, yeah, those two are out now. And uh, I think they've turned up very well. And um, on we go. Let's get that rainforest uh, completely destroyed by 2025. <laughs> You're well on your way. You're well on your way. And you're working on a couple more to add to that total, I think, right? What are you working on now? I am. I'm doing the autobiography of a man called John Mayall, and you'll know who that is because uh, you're an expert in this. But John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, they were the first band that Eric Clapton was a member of. Indeed. And when I mention John Mayall's name to, to most Americans, they think we're talking about John Mayer. Um, <laughs> who, that's blasphemous. <laughs> a whole, wholly different artist. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. Awesome. I look forward to that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. There's some crazy stories in there, really. Some that I could never repeat on a family-friendly program. Such <laughs> as this. this is a PG show, Joel. You, <laughs> you. When can we expect that one out? Well, we haven't got a deal yet. The agents are battling that one out. The agents and publishers are in a war. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'd be nice to get that out, you know, yeah. reasonably soon. He's 83, a busy man. It's a huge tome. You know, it's like 200,000 words. Wow. Um, so it's going to take a little while. But then I have three or four other similar sort of projects on the go with other musicians who I can't quite mention just yet, right? but as soon as I can, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. I wish you luck on those, sir. Thank you. So listen, I know that you uh, prepared a list of songs that make your skin vibrate. And so um, without any further ado, maybe we should get into those. What do you want to start with? So my first song is called uh, Sitting in a Dream, um, and it's kind of by Ronnie James Dio, the late heavy metal singer, right. but at the same time, it, it's really not. It's it's on uh, a sort of a children's heavy rock album, if, if that makes sense, called The Butterfly Ball, which was 
the solo project of uh, Roger Glover, who was the bass player in Deep Purple. So it's kind of a Deep Purple related LP. And it's kind of a sort of a has a kind of fantasy theme running through it. It's four children, like I say. But the music and the caliber of the musicians on it is anything but four children. Right. So basically, Roger Glover in 1974, I want to say had this idea in a way that you could do back then right because there was tons of record company budget and uh you know if you were a, a sort of incredibly successful rock musician you could do these incredibly self-indulgent side <laughs> projects right which is what this was I and mean, it's fantastic if you if you ever have a look at the artwork uh for the butterfly ball it's wonderful and the song that i put on this list because it raises a kind of emotional response to me is the one where ronnie james dio is playing the part of a frog right now bear <laughs> with me on this right okay he's a a kind of a traveling uh, musician with his banjo on his back or whatever, a frog, right, in this in this world inhabited by sort of talking animals okay. um, who are all heading towards this event called the Butterfly Ball. And he's lazing around, spending time, and it is an absolutely beautiful acoustic ballad with some piano and some strings. And Ronnie's voice, I, I never, I've never heard it as sort of plangent and emotive as it is in this song. Wonderful, though, his much later um, sort of grown-up work was, you know. Um, and you know, I, nowadays, at the age of 46, uh, you know, I'd rather listen to Heaven and Hell uh, or, or a sort of a Dio album than this, perhaps. But at the time, as a child, I remember very clearly, uh, I was given this LP when I was three. Wow. And uh, I, I, by my mum, I think. Um, I don't know if she got it from a friend or, or however it worked. But um, I think she was into Purple back then. And I was given this album and I used to dance around the room, like, you know, like a little kid, that, like, <laughs> like I watch my own kids doing now to their own music. It's incredible. Right. Um, and it's just a wonderful little lovely acoustic ballad with wonderful vocals from Ronnie, who I later got to meet uh, and interview. And uh, I said to him, look, Ronnie, I've, I realize this sounds weird, but the very first LP I ever had was was with you. It was the Butterfly Ball. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to speak to you now because of this. And he said, that's great, kid. Wonderful. <laughs> and, he, and he said that. Thought, oh man, I wish you were my dad, you know, or, or at least a friendly uncle, whatever. But that's the first song. That's great. So I, I'd heard that song, and and I think it was written. It was a concept album that Roger Glover did. I think it was recorded yeah. around like early seventies, like seventy four, right? I'd heard the tune. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know about the frog bit and all that stuff, but um, it it sounds oh, like, brilliant. Yeah, it's 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 a very it's almost like it borders on psychedelic. It sounds like it was recorded in the '60s. Yep, totally it does. And, yeah, it and, does have that very warm kind of widescreen '70s production that you got, you know, with those studios and especially on vinyl. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a hippie song really, and a, and a nice little song for kids. Yeah. I don't think it has a deeper meaning particularly, no. other than I'm just lazing around waiting for time to pass. But I quite like that message. You know, that's quite comforting and soothing. Yeah, yeah, and and Dio's voice itself. I mean, you know, you're reminded of songs like um, "The Sign of the Southern Cross" or "The Last in Line" that have that kind of quiet passage at the beginning, and then those big crashing power chords come in. But you know, it's kind of funny because a lot of people, um, to your point, wouldn't know that Dio did something like this. No, and he doesn't actually sound vocally the way he did in his later uh, records when his voice matured. Exactly, he sounds like a choir boy on this album. It's a very kind of high, pure tenor. Yeah, um, and it's and it, it's. It, it probably would not have worked in a heavy metal context uh, had his voice not deepened a little bit and his range extended. Exactly. Um, but he's not. He's also not doing any of those kind of the heavy metal kind of wails, you know, and the massive vibrato <laughs> and all that stuff, which evidently you had to do if you were in Zeppelin or Purple, you know, um, or indeed Maiden. That's right. You know, there's none of that. It's, it's much purer and more simple than that. So it's very interesting for Dio fans to listen to, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. What else have you got, Joel? 
So immediately after getting into that stuff, but when I was five, six or seven years old, uh, my parents had a Beatles uh, compilation album called Oldies But Goldies. Okay. Um, it came out years after the Beatles split. It probably came out around 1978 or something. I don't know. Um, but we had it lying around the house. You know, it's a familiar story, isn't it, right? You, know, you, you, you start poking around your parents' record collection. And anyway, the songs just jumped out at me. I, I hadn't heard the Beatles before. And uh, Help was the song that was huge for me. I was obsessed with that song. And I'm a complete music geek. You know, things like tempo changes and key changes will, will stick in my mind. You know, yeah. I can't get them out. And that started for me at a very young age. Um, the very first opening uh, line of Help, where they, where they, it opens with the chorus, doesn't it? It goes into Help. The way that that vocal chord is constructed is really, really emotional to me. It's I, I, I haven't broken down the chord, actually. When they just sing, Help, and that's the yeah. first thing. Yeah. There's probably three three vocal notes that they're hitting between the four of them, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and then it just goes from there. And it, the, the music just powers along. And I had this crappy old kind of record player where you could isolate... Um, one side or the other and the way that this I don't know if the original song Help was mixed this way or whether the LP was mixed this way but you could isolate bass and drums on one side and guitars and vocals on the other Okay. Um, and, and I used to do that religiously that was my thing and uh, Ringo Starr was my massive hero I never went on to play the drums or anything I just loved hearing him play the drums on that wow. song but it was something to do with that, that vocal harmony the way it was constructed I, I, it, I, I just became obsessed with it and the Beatles was really all I listened to until I was about 11 you know, really? maybe 12 yeah. Even 12, yeah, 11, certainly. Yeah, incredible. I mean, it's almost cheesy to bring up the Beatles, you know, but, but <laughs> they're in our DNA, aren't they? You can't get away from it. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, with, with a band like the Beatles with such a, a, a voluminous um, landscape to choose from in terms of tunes, yeah. um, you know, even though yeah. they're only around for 10 years, um, it's interesting that you picked this one. And, and, and that's the fascinating thing about doing this program is that people identify with you know their own individual things and it's fascinating to hear people's perceptions yeah. of why they tune into certain songs yeah there's something very unusual about the psychology of all this you Absolutely. know you must have found when talking to people oh, i mean yeah. help is even my favorite beatles song right yeah. it's just one that i was obsessed with when i was a kid completely inadvertently i'm sure not for the reasons that anybody else would be there's no explaining it man it's very interesting yeah well that's that's the beauty of it you know it's it's fascinating to me What's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, gee. I don't even know if I could pick one. Um, here, There, and yeah, Everywhere. You had to. You had to pick one. If I had to pick one, I would probably pick Here, There, and Everywhere. Oh, yeah. It's a lovely song. I think that... Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I was a, I was I was in university and I really got into the Beatles and and I was kind of a, I gravitated to Lennon, you know, because Lennon yeah. was kind of that anti-hero tough guy. You know, he just yeah. had that image where you know he kind of looked like he was giving you the finger with his eyes, you know. <laughs> but yes. um, and, and McCartney was was the polar opposite. You know, he was like the hey, let's be friends, cute guy. Yeah. And so at that, at, yeah. at that point in your life, you kind of gravitate to you know what what you you know see inside those things and and. I gravitated to Lennon, but then after I, I, I really grew to appreciate, um, you know, maybe as, as I got a little bit more mature, um, McCartney's prolific songwriting. I mean, the guy was just a genius. All of those songs, song after song after song, just brilliant. A brilliant the songwriter. Volume, the, the actual volume of it is insane. How much stuff came out and how, how great each one was. Right? Yeah. I mean, that insanely prolific. You know? Yes. Uh, I never, I've never um, met a Beatle, but I was at Air Studios in London a couple of years ago, and McCartney was sitting in the canteen, reading the newspaper and eating a 
fucking donut <laughs> by, himself, <laughs> by himself. And I and I had to at one point walk past him because I was going to go and get myself a cup of coffee. Yeah. And I was he was there, and I was walking towards him. He looked up, he looked away, and I thought, man, I should really say something for God's sake. It's Paul McCartney. Yeah. Just go up and shake the dude's hand and and say something. But then I thought, you know what? Be professional. He obviously wants to get away from people for a while, reading his paper. Yeah. Don't be a dick. So I didn't say hi. Oh. To this day, I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not. Well, <laughs> you know what, though? That's to your credit. You know, I, I think you're right. I think I, It was the professional thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, if, if, if he pops off in 2017, you know, I'll be, I'll be annoyed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope he doesn't. Let's hope not. Okay, so you've got, uh, what else have you got here on your list, Joel? My next song is uh, by Soft Cell. Now, I, I'm 46 now, which means that when that first wave of synth, not the first wave, but the second wave probably of synth stuff, and I mean Soft Cell and Yazoo, Depeche Mode, yep. um, that really started over here, I want to say 1980, 81, 82, um, and then kind of actually didn't go away for many years, but th- those were certainly the peak times. So being your, you know, standard 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, the, one of the first albums I bought, maybe the first one, was Soft Cell's first one. Okay. Uh, non-stop erotic cabaret. And it scared me to death, Brent. It was so dark. Really? The, the, the world that it portrayed was so sexually deviant. In a, and I was at an age where I didn't really know what that was about. I just knew it was really fucking strange. Yeah. And if you dig deep into that, that album... It portrays a world of uncertainty and sort of teenage fear and, and persecution and something very strange going on in the bedroom, you know, <laughs> that you don't, that you don't really know about. And Bedsitter uh, is the song that personifies it for me. It has these creepy sounds, yep. which nowadays obviously sound really clunky and old, but at the time we're like, what the hell is this? And he's singing about some horrendous life, which is just based on total debauchery and overindulgence. Now, clearly, at the age of 10 or 11, I didn't really have a reference on this, but it sounded very, very strange and very alluring, I have to say, and very kind of just dark and weird and gothic and odd. Yeah. Um, and and I, was, I grew up in, in the countryside, um, and he was very much from the city. You know, he talked about the kind of the crushing darkness and the neon lights and all that stuff. So all that basically appealed. And, and, and in a weird way, I remember my mum coming into my bedroom looking at the song titles, which are things like... <laughs> Sex Dwarf is <laughs> one of the songs on that record, as well as all the big songs that we all know, like Tempted Love and, and Say Hello, Wave Goodbye. Yeah. And she said, well, what is this? And we're kind of laughing in a tolerant way. But I, I, I got so obsessed with this record, I even wrote a review of it like yeah. on a typewriter and, and stuck it onto the back of the album in my you know, 11-year-old kind of obsession with it. And anyway, so, wow. so that song was huge for me. And, and, I, and I got to interview Mark Armand you know, 30 years later. And yep. um, I still think the guy's a hero, you know, an amazing man, the, the stuff he sang about, the, you could feel the, the agony he was going through, I think. I think he laid it all out on the vinyl. That that was what struck me in a way that, say, Depeche Mode didn't, you know. Yeah. That was all kind of fun, catchy, synthy stuff. And but, but Soft Cell had that kind of gritty edge, which I admired. And that was the first sort of real, almost emotional music that I'd heard uh, because the Beatles, for me, uh, were more cheerful, you know. Yes. I, I wasn't old enough when I listened to the Beatles to appreciate that there was a darker side on some of those albums. Right. Um, so, it, you know, I know synth pop is, is funny and cheesy and silly, um, but actually, if you get deep into some of the better albums of the genre, the stuff is quite profound philosophically. And that, that was what I felt at the time with, with Soft Cell. 
But, you know, and, that, and that's really interesting because for the passive listener, you know, especially particularly in Canada, because, you know, Tainted Love was the only exposure that we had. And, and you listened to that very passively. And you didn't consider the fact that, you know, there might be any form of kind of darkness or debauchery, anything mm. like that. So I think it's fascinating that you can really kind of dig into a band like Soft Cell that most people would just say, yeah, Tainted Love, I guess, one hit wonder. Yeah. But there's so much more to it if you, you know, pull back the curtain, right? Yeah. I mean, Tainted Love was, wasn't it an old Motown cover or an old soul cover anyway, you know? So there wasn't a, uh, as much, keep using the word dark, it's such a cliche, but that, that, that's not what that song is about. And it, it was obviously their biggest hit here as well. You mm-hmm. had to dig a little bit deeper into some of the other singles and, and the album tracks to, to appreciate that there was a certain depth there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, now all that stuff will appear in kind of comedies about the 80s. You know? yeah. And that doesn't really have much traction when it comes to being taken seriously. Yeah. Uh, which actually leads me into the next song quite well, which is Kids in America by Kim Wilde. Love right? it. Was that a hit over there in, it, in North America? It, it, it definitely was. And it was, it, and, I, I think it was just because the, it was so catchy, you know, like the, it was, a, it was yeah. a, a perfectly manufactured pop song. Right. And, that, and that is the, that is the word to apply to it. It was manufactured as a, there's a bit at the end where a bunch of male backing vocalists saying, we're the kids, we're the kids in America. <laughs> and what they do is whoever has produced the song and arranged it has said to those singers, you've got to do that kind of Johnny Rotten snarl. Yeah. Um, because what they say is we're the kids in the kids in this kind of like, fake plastic punk way and yeah. uh, that, that that I think appealed to a lot of people who thought wow man this is rebellious <laughs> oh my god you know it's pretty dark and I, even at the time I listened to that and I laughed at that part but there was something about Kim Wilde's voice and the bass sound that kind of uh, sort of insistent bass um, sort of, uh, note that's piddling at the beginning of the song yeah um and it had like all those great American bands like the Cars. It had a one finger keyboard lick. Yeah. And and all the ingredients of it were great. And I became another song that I was really obsessed with. And it, again, it's basically synth pop. It does have a live. It has live guitars or whatever on it. But it's basically a manufactured cheesy thing. I had I had a real crush on her as well when I was. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about when I was 14. Oh yeah. You know, I, and even, even though she wasn't a conventional beauty, but but she that that made her more attractive to me. Well, she wasn't um, a bad-looking lady, was she? No, not at all. And in fact, she looks fantastic now. She's in her fifties, funny enough. Um, but uh, so that song just gripped me, even though at the same time I was starting to understand how fake and manufactured it was. Yeah. Um, it wasn't for me because of the connotations of being in America. America was a very glamorous place yeah. to us, especially when because I lived out in the countryside, you know, a remote part, not remote, but a, an uncool part of England in the southwest, where mostly populated by pig farmers. <laughs> and uh, but it wasn't because of that actually. Uh, it was a very English-sounding song. I always wondered how Americans took it seriously. I mean, how they could. How, how would you have an, a, a, an English person singing this sort of drivel about America? Yeah. But uh, obviously, it went down well, right? It, people liked it. It, it. it really did over here, definitely. Funny, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I love that song. You know, I could listen to that over and over again. It's just, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's actually listenable. You know, in a way that a lot of songs are not. Right yeah. Now. It's just, it's oral candy. I mean, it's a guilty pleasure. There's nothing terribly sophisticated about it. And to our point, I mean, it's just man, it's a manufactured song. But yeah, I mean, you break down those lyrics. I don't think they really stand up to scientific analysis. <laughs> no, they definitely don't. What is it? She says outside suburbia sprawling. I mean, yeah. You know. I mean, her dad was Marty Wilde, right? One of the the, the cheesy old kind of um, 
cabaret singers, or not cabaret, but sort of pseudo rock and roll singers from the 60s. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. So she, yeah, she, she came from uh, a sort of old rock tradition, you know. Um, so you, you can pick what would have happened there. She would have followed her dad into the business and hooked up with whoever. I don't know who the producer was. I should have checked that out probably, but it's going to be one of those well-known uh, London guys. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the most 80s song there is, I think. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But I love the 80s. I'm all right with it. <laughs> so do I. No shame in that game, Joel. Oh, man. Anyway, that's enough of that cheesy stuff because now we start to get into metal. So I've done this. Uh, well, not that, not that the metal is any less cheesy actually. But uh, <laughs> what essentially what happened when I was 17, and it's quite late in my development, I guess, to suddenly turn to metal because I've, I've become known as a metal guy with the book that I've written on the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until I was 17 that I actually got into the stuff in a serious way. I had previously heard a little bit of metal here and there, and I had thought it was cheesy, I guess, sexist, sort of spandex-clad nonsense mm-hmm. um, from the stuff I'd seen, just as people today still think of it because they don't think about it very deeply. They find it very hard to see past the dragon slaying and, and, and the skinny, you know, the, the trousers. The large-breasted um, Valkyries. But exactly. But <laughs> yeah. a friend of mine um, uh, across the road played me Master of Puppets by Metallica. Yeah. And I, I cannot tell you how much that album <laughs> re- realigned everything for me, right? Wow. When it came to music. I mean, previously, I had loved music that had energy. Yeah. All the songs we've talked about so far, every single one has had a kind of power and an energy that, that makes you want to jump around. But this redefined all that for me, and... The entire Master of Puppets album just just destroyed me, and the song that is most powerful on that for me is Disposable Heroes, which is the one that I'm nominating now. Brilliant. Something to do with it's something to do with with strictly practical stuff. So I had I had just started to learn to play the bass and the guitar at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, James Hetfield's playing and his picking for a young guy are, are properly otherworldly. You know, I mean, unbelievable. Stuff. But, but that's, and that's something we can appreciate on a technical level, but there was something about the contained violence of the music and the, the sort of the majesty of it as well. Yep. And you can contrast that neatly with the sixth song on my list, which is by Slayer, because okay. I got into Slayer a little, you know, about the same time. And on the one hand, Metallica had this kind of restrained elegance, if you like. Yep. Certainly by the time they got to their second and third album. But Slayer had this kind of terrible malevolence, you know, that... <laughs> It was like murderous and was about to fall off the rails at any moment. And so the two styles contrasted really well. Um, so I, you know, I've chosen Reborn from, from uh, Slayer's Reign in Blood as, as the song that accompanies this Metallica song because those two albums and those two songs in particular, I cannot tell you, Brent, how much they reconfigured things for me yeah. in 1988. And I had already become, as I've said, an, an, uh, an obsessive about all sorts of pop music, but only really pop music. You know, I had a little bit of jazz under my belt, a little bit of classical. Yeah. I had encountered a, a bit of classical music, uh, mainly from my dad, who was into it. I wasn't an expert by any means, and it wasn't something that moved me particularly okay. until I came across Bach's Violin Concertos, which I still listen to to this day on a, religiously. And also the, the, the next song on my list, which is by Mahler, and it's Symphony Number no. 5 in C-sharp minor, and the piece is called Adagetto. It's actually one of those... You know how you get classical music that is ubiquitous? I mean, you know, it's in TV adverts, you know, yeah. it's, it's on, uh, like, you might get a CD that's like 100% best Christmas classical music, you know, yeah, you yeah. Know, and everyone knows it and everyone hums it, you know, but, yeah. but there's still some power to it. This is kind of one of those, except for the fact that it's much more introspective and quiet, and it does it does rise to a climax towards its end, Yeah. but it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful emotive piece of music that makes me think 
because I, I I always think of music in visual terms somehow is it makes me think of some sort of giant lake that you're sitting next to, you know, and and it's kind of a huge pool of energy or water or something like that that right. that is soundtracked by this incredible music. So I'm I'm not by any means an expert on classical music and have never been. It's a, it's like this huge area of music that you would need ten lifetimes to to adequately survey. Absolutely. Um, but but the classical music that I do know about, I love very deeply. And this is one of them. If you listen to it and it just takes you somewhere, you know, takes you somewhere, then that's its job is done, isn't it? I mean, that, that, you've got to admire these, these incredible talents who, who did this stuff. And uh, you always feel a bit ignorant, don't you, about classical music? Same with jazz. My next one's a jazz tune. You yeah. know, all the one after that is a jazz tune. You, you always feel that you should really know a bit more about it than you do. But, uh, you know, you only get one lifetime, unfortunately, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, I wanted to say the thing about classical music that, and I, I do love it. I mean, to your point, it's, it's such a vast genre that's easily recognizable and it's also cheesy. But, like, if you really kind of dig deeper beyond that, there's great stuff like Mahler. Uh, yeah. The, the thing that, that has always fascinated me about classical music is that it's, it's completely and absolutely interpretive to the individual. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, uh, you might listen to, to, to one of Mahler's compositions and, uh, and, and just be overjoyed by it. It might make me absolutely sad, might bring me to tears, right? Yeah. But it's just, yeah. it, it's not like any other form of music that way. It's the same composition, but without, maybe it's because there's no lyrics to kind of lead you in a certain way emotionally. But um, I've always been fascinated by that with classical music. Absolutely. You know, and, and the power that the stuff has is it's insane. Yes. I mean, all music has the power to manipulate your psyche. But, you know, you go and sit in a, uh, say, an organ recital in a, in a large cathedral with a powerful enough uh, organ. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like going to see Iron Maiden. Or <laughs> it's true. In, in a giant stadium, the power that that thing has will just... We'll just knock you, knock you backwards, and uh, yeah. not that I'm, you know, I'm only into music to, to be impressed by its power. But that, if if you're looking for that experience, the annihilation of the senses, then that's certainly something you can you can experience. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna I was gonna mention one of my, you know, Bach violin concertos in this list, but I just thought everyone they're they're the most obvious way in, aren't they? Mm-hmm. A little bit later on this list, in fact, I might as well say it now is is a Miles Davis tune, and I've chosen. Freddie Freeloader, and I can't remember if I read this in your book or whether it was in someone else's book, but Kind of Blue, the Miles Davis record, yes. is the one that all rock fans, it's like rock fans' entry into jazz. It's true. Um, or rather, non-fusion jazz. Uh, it may well have been from your book, actually, that I, I got that. Yeah. But um, it, it occurred to me that actually that's completely true. And the reason why I mentioned that in the same breath as Bach is that Bach's violin concertos are, I think, they, they serve a similar function there. They're sort of easily digestible, wonderfully melodic pieces that uh, would bring unknowing people into classical music. And Miles Davis is sort of similar. Yeah. You know, the song I chose and Freddie Freeloader, I think, is one of three uh, obvious tunes that, that, that appeal to, to people who don't know anything about jazz, uh, jazz on Kind of Blue. And they're amazing, you know, they're great songs. But this one is a particularly evocative song for me, a tune, I should say. It's uh, it's not the soloing, it's not the calibre of, of the... Uh, it was a quintet, wasn't it, on, um, on uh, Kind of Blue? Um, um, it's just the it's the vibe, it's the atmosphere, and it's the, it's the it's the alluring way that you think. Oh man, I wish I was in a cafe. Oh sorry, I wish I was in a, a cellar in Paris in 1959. Exactly. Uh, drinking an absinthe and smoking a gitan and, and hearing <laughs> this stuff. 
because you know that and it, and it's a kind of a cheesy fantasy in some ways but it's also a really really uh, uh, enticing one you know you, you cannot beat kind of blue there's a reason why and as i think it is i think it's the biggest selling jazz album of all, of all time if that is if you discount crap by kenny g and, and stuff like that you know, <laughs> which is kind of jazz jazz super super light exactly um, it's, it's the real stuff isn't it and it, you don't have to understand it and in fact i really don't i suspect that miles davis became popular because as he said himself his his trumpet lines weren't particularly complex because he couldn't play that way <laughs> which I, which i think probably lent his music a certain degree of digestibility yeah um but it's amazing man i mean you know i could sit and listen to kind of blue all the way through in a way that i could not about almost any other jazz album i could think of yeah i can see that definitely you know i, I used to think it's funny because I, I love jazz but you know i i used to think that it was for douchebags who tried to convince people that they were deeper than they actually were you know yeah Exactly. Um, and t- until I think I, I probably started listening to Joni Mitchell. Do you, are you familiar with Joni Mitchell? I'm familiar with some of her stuff. Specifically, um, I liked, uh, is it Hegira that has Jaco Pastorius playing bass on? Yes. Uh, I think it's that. And, and uh, yeah, a couple of the bigger records. But, yeah, I'm not an expert at all. I think I could probably hold my own in a discussion with uh, Monk, Mingus, Coltrane. Yeah. Uh, and, and Miles, but not really anybody else, I think. Yeah. Other than the, the fusionists, so I, I do know a bit about Weather Report and Chick Corea and the rest of those guys because I've had to learn and write about them and, and meet many of them actually as part of my professional career. That's um, great. But it, it's not. I wouldn't necessarily go home and put a Return to Forever album on for pleasure necessarily. Yeah. Whereas I would with with Miles Davis. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you would call it you know a jazz music starter kit. I mean, I think it kind of blew is, is just, yeah. to your point, it's just more digestible for some reason. I mean, but it has incredible depth as well. I don't know, it, it, jazz is so over-intellectualized, isn't it? And it's, you always feel like you should be fighting some kind of intellectual war with people who know more about it <laughs> than you do. That's true. And, and you, you really shouldn't, shouldn't approach it that way. You wouldn't, you wouldn't approach metal in that way, or funk, or soul, or R&B. Uh, you would enjoy it for what it was. So jazz does have that kind of stigma attached to it that only people who are very clever like it. Yeah. Um, and if you can get past that, uh, as I have done, then uh, it's very enjoyable. Yeah, I agree. So what else have you got, Joel? So the next song, uh, so right, so I uh, heard a bit of classical, heard a bit of jazz in my teens uh, when I was already a heavy metal head. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff was jangling enjoyably around my brain. And then I went to university in Edinburgh in Scotland and a very good friend of mine was, uh, 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 we spent a lot of time sitting around all night drinking okay. uh, and listening to music. Right? And of course, though, though, that is the best way to educate yourself about music, <laughs> just as you've written about in your own books and we've been talking about. Um Listen to music with people who love that music and you yep. understand it. And he got me into the Sisters of Mercy. And uh, once you can get past the cheesy kind of gothic thing, then it's just amazing atmospheric music. And I've yeah. heard in the song Marianne. Um, the song, the song's full title is Marianne, and then the word version mm-hmm. in brackets. Um, and it's one of those very very sparse records from Floodland, their second album of only three that they made. Um, that just spoke to me so much. We, me and this, my friend Bruce, who now lives in LA um, or California, we would um, just sit around drinking this Scottish beer, <laughs> like, and we thought we were pretty deep. You know what I mean? We were like <laughs> 19 years old, and we're listening to this quite dark music with elements of Nick Cave and with elements of Depeche Mode and all this stuff and all the rest of it, but much, just much deeper than that. Yeah. Um, and of course, we weren't. We were, we were a couple of assholes. But it was, it was a. <laughs> I, I never lost sight of that music. 
And then I, I, I imagine I'll repeat this quite a lot in this conversation, but it, it was doubly rewarding when many, many years later I got to go and interview Andrew Eldridge, uh, the singer, mm -hmm. uh, in Budapest. And I think that was in about 2010. It was the first interview he'd done in years and years and years with the mainstream press, and I did it for Classic Rock. And uh, I got to sit down with the man and, and get some sort of clarity on what, what life was like being in being the sister of mercy, essentially. And the fact is they only made three records and then stopped um, because they, they fell out with their record company and, I don't know, maybe times changed. I don't know. I don't really know what happened. But for me, they kind of epitomized a certain time in my life. And, you know, I don't know if there's a common thread running through all this stuff. I mean, when I look at the Sisters of Mercy song I've just mentioned, I actually tie it in quite deeply with the soft sell song I mentioned much earlier on. Uh -huh. um, there's a kind of minimalism, which I love. Uh, and a kind of threat, and a sort of a sort of a stark feel that that is not necessarily friendly, but it but it is evocative, and it, it does make you think, and that's why it's on this list. Yeah, and a little bit more attractive for a young person seeking out stronger sensations, I think, right? Yeah, I think so. There, there comes that point when you, you you really look for extremes, don't you? And in fact, <laughs> that segues quite nearly into the next the next song. I, I was interested in, in, in seeking out different emotions in music and, and exploring new soundscapes, as it were. And I became interested in the idea of um, the annihilation of the senses, which I mentioned earlier, and that is, of course. Yep. Um, although, like I say, I was, you know, I was a young dickhead at the time. I had no idea of these <laughs> concepts. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't sitting around thinking, yeah, what I need next is the annihilation of the senses. <laughs> it, it's just something that has interested me a bit, you know. And uh, so... Later, when I became a journalist, I got into death metal, um, and this is the, the third of only three death uh, metal tunes on the, on this list of twelve, uh, which again may surprise a lot of people because again I'm the metal guy. I've done all these metal books yeah. and journalism and met all these people and done all this. So Cannibal Corpse, which is the uh, probably the, the biggest selling death metal band, but not not that that's saying a huge thing because it's still a, a niche mm -hmm. genre of music. They specialise in what they would call relatively technical. But extremely heavy music and the, the, the song that they released a few years ago called the time to kill is now you can tell they've constructed it so that the introduction is perfect for playing live and just leveling an audience yeah because it's uh, a complete wall of sound but utterly audible as well everything is very clear there's incredible clarity in the music and you can just close your eyes and, and it will wash over you or, or knock you back and it's it's almost like safe violence you know, the, the, an incredible kind of blast of noise that will not harm you, but will make you understand what it's like to have all your senses turned up to max. Yeah. So 10 out of 10 or 100%. And people listen to this stuff and they'll say to me, you know, my own family will say to me, what is this crap? <laughs> listening to? I mean, this is just nonsense. And it's juvenile. The start is it's people trying to be rebellious. These people can't play. None of these things are accurate, but I totally get why people are saying these things. Yeah. And and the band do too. They're all they're all intelligent guys. I did their book actually a few years ago, the official cannibal book. Yeah. And got to know them very well. And they they all fully understand that this music just repels a lot of people. They just think, what is this? What is this nonsense? Life's too short to have your ears and your mind blown away. Yeah. Uh, by this kind of very very aggressive music. But for me, it's more than just the music. It's it's the experience of having your mind kind of washed clean. Yeah. Um, by this sort of legalized, licensed madness, as it were. And I've never really gone too deep into, into extreme metal to the extent that it's a lifestyle. I've written books about stuff and I've been to a lot of gigs, but I don't dress the part, you know, I, I, don't, I don't try and live that way, you know, mm -hmm. I don't listen to it all the time. But from time to time, it's great to have some music that will genuinely create a, a, a total vacuum, as it were, because it, because it takes up all the available bandwidth that you have. 
Mm-hmm. And this song is very much about that, at least the, 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 the opening few seconds and bars are anyway. So um, I actually use it to uh, annoy cold calling people, you know, when they phone you up and try and sell you stuff. <laughs> yeah. I seriously do. I've done this a few times. I hold my phone up next to my computer speakers and blast this song. Uh, tell, uh, you, you tell the guy at the other end of the line to hold uh, and uh, just I'm going to put you on hold, you know, and you play this music. It's perfect. <laughs> It's juvenile, but it's hilarious. <laughs> well, it, uh, I know that tune, and it, it doesn't get much more intense than that, so I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it does the trick. <laughs> and the last song is by David Bowie. Oh, now, David Bowie. I was, only a, I was a Bowie fan like everyone is a Bowie fan. Anybody I could think of could name 15 or 20 Bowie songs that they love. Yeah. You know, would they go deep into the albums? Not necessarily. You know, there's there's a it's a large catalogue and, and a very esteemed one. I know a lot of Bowie freaks, but they they're generally older than me because they were there on the ground when Ziggy Stardust came out in '72, mm-hmm. which I was not. So that said, I, the, Bowie is one of the artists that I've gone back and rediscovered over the years, and especially in the last year or two when I've been working with a guy called Woody Woodmansey uh, on his autobiography. Right now, Woody was Woody was the drummer in the Spiders from Mars. Yeah, um, which means that he played drums on The Man Who Sold the World, uh, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, and Aladdin Sane. What a and, great run um, that was. This song, Lady Grinning Soul, from Aladdin Sane, is just very, to me, at the peak of his powers in the early 70s. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of people might disagree. There are certainly uh, more popular songs, more instantly recognizable songs than this one, but it's a kind of a, a strange, eccentric, pseudo-classical piece that was ripped off hugely, I think, in the 90s by bands like Porter's Head and Goldfrapp. Definitely. Um, with that kind of sort of lounge vibe that it has. But And I, I had heard this, this song many times over the years, but it became more relevant to me over the process of writing Woody's book in the last two years, yeah. which is why I've chosen it at the end of this list, because it's the most recent song that's made a, a big emotional impact on me. Okay. You can immerse yourself in it. I think what if there's a link between all these songs is that they are very immersive, and you, you can sit there with your headphones on and, and inhabit a whole other world when you listen to the stuff. And Bowie, to me, is clearly he's the subject of an awful lot of hyperbole at the moment, Yep. Um, but that aside, he, he certainly stands out to me as the guy who is the least explained major star. Um, he, he's, he's the one, the, the artist of his caliber who, who, about whom we understand the least. Yeah. That interests me because you, you can plow deeper and deeper into his work and you'll never get through it. You'll never get to the, to the core of it because the stuff was just too unusual, you know, and, and impenetrable. You know, he, he put everything on the table and you still couldn't see all of it. That, that was what fascinates me about Bowie. Yeah. Um, much more. I mean, I'm interested in the whole androgynous thing, and I'm interested in the social uh, changes that his arrival engineered. I get all that, and we wrote about that in Woody's book. But to me, uh, it's more the fact that there's something about the music which is which won't reveal itself, and uh, that's certainly the case in this song. It's very hard to understand. It, you need to listen to it a hundred times before you can uh, follow it musically. But and it's beautiful at the same time. You know, it's utterly gorgeous. It's one of those wonderful songs that that you like straight away, even though you don't know what the fuck it's about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I you know I couldn't have said that better about David Bowie. Um, and even in terms of deep tracks, things like "Sweet Thing" is a great yeah. example of what you just said. I have no idea yeah. what that song is about, but it's just a, it's such a unique. I I get tongue tied just even thinking about songs like that, like "Soul Love." You know, he he had so many great deep tracks. You know, especially yeah. through that period of late of Aladdin Sane and and Lady Grinning Soul. And again. It- you know, I'm sure if you went and met the guy, if you talked to him, you know, ten years ago, he would he would seem, you know, fairly conventional. I think. Yeah, and that, that's that, um, 
That's yeah. what I was going to say. He, um, you know, he had talked about all the personas that he had adapted with, you know, Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. and Lad Saint and the Thin White Duke. And he said that he used those as, as masks because at his core, he was just a very shy person and super modest, you could, you super humble. You compare it with someone like Robert De Niro, who says exactly the same thing, doesn't he? He says he himself doesn't really have a personality. He just like bolts one on as is needed. Yeah. So, Joel, listen, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate uh, you know, the list you provided us with today is fantastic. It's, uh, it's vast. It is, uh, all encompassing. You had some jazz on there. You had some classical, you had some, some death metal <laughs> It's <was> fantastic. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, probably my favorite thing about doing the show is just, you know, the learning and being exposed to music that, you know, I might not be exposed to, uh, otherwise. So, so I thank you for, for that. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. I wish, I wish every interview I did was like this. It's it's self-indulgent almost to talk about your own music tastes uh, in a, at as great a length as I as you've allowed me to do. But on the other hand, it's exactly what you just said. It's wonderful to be able to share on an emotional level something which is essentially an emotional thing. Music, you know, we we analyze it, we write about it, we we consider it far too deeply and over intellectualize it. But ultimately, <laughs> the chance to talk about music and its emotions is the most enjoyable thing of all. So I thank you so much for having me on your show. You're very welcome. And I know that you've got, uh, you know, a lot more songs. We're going to have you back on to talk about those too. Oh, please count me in for that. There's, we, there's, I could, we could do hundreds, couldn't we? <laughs> we could. You're definitely going to be a recurring guest. There's no question. <laughs> all right, my man. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and Joel McIver, my special guest. Thank you very much. And we will see you next time. 